you'd open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, spot the prayer. Lord, it's been already said several times that we do thank you, Father, for this great day that you've given to us. And again, Father, thank you, Lord, for the freedom and the ability that we have to come and gather together as your people to encourage each other, to be encouraged by each other, to spend time in prayer together, to be able to pray for each other. Father, to be able to read your word, to hear your word being read to us aloud, to study your word. We just thank you, Father, for that. And Lord, it's just a, a marvelous thing that we possess. So we ask now that you would continue to bless us. That, Father, you would grant us understanding of your word. Again, you would give to us the ability to comprehend those things that are being uh, discussed here by Paul. That, Father, we would become the better for it. And we do thank you and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 28. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, that the wife see that she respects her husband. So we spent some time going through what the scripture says about the responsibility, in particular, the husband has in loving his wife and what that is to look like. And so then as we continue on in Ephesians 5, Paul then kind of summarizes it and reiterates the things in general as to what he's saying. When he says here that husbands ought to love their wives, uh, the word ought there conveys the meaning of owing a debt, that the individual has a very strong obligation. Now, this is a strong obligation that we have to love our wives because this is what God commands us. This is what God has given us to do. We are bound by a moral obligation. It is a personal duty that we have to love our wives. Um, It is a compulsion that arises from a given set of circumstances. And, of course, it's in the present tense, which means that this is the husband's continual duty. It's something that never ends. So, again, he says the husband ought to, as we've already said, is a strong obligation. Uh, it's like he, in the same way that a man owes a big debt, uh, this is his obligation to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. So we have to ask ourselves, So how are we to understand this? In other words, how is a husband to do this? What does it look like? Well, the answer is given in verse 29. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. So the first word in verse 29, the word for, it's a strategic term of explanation. In other words, Paul here is introducing a straightforward explanation of why men should have no difficulty loving their wives as they love themselves. It's because uh, everyone loves themselves. Everybody loves their own flesh, so to speak. That's the comparison. Uh, That's the analogy that he's using. We don't hate ourselves, so we should not hate our wives. Uh, And again, that's kind of emphasizing, I guess, through the back door, the one flesh idea. Because we're one flesh, to love yourself is to love your wife. To love yourself is to love yourself. It's the same thing. 
So when you look at that verse and you break it down, when he says, no one ever hated his own flesh, the word no one there does mean absolutely no one. It is emphasizing that there is not ever one person, uh, that every single individual is who he's talking about. Every, there is no one who has ever hated himself. The word hate here means to detest or to reject or to abhor. Now, a man may mistreat himself, but it's not because he hates himself, not truly. Uh, the, the Greek word that is used means to have a strong aversion to something. And again, it is in the aorist tense, and some of the commentaries, when they write about this word, they're basically saying this is a, uh, an expression here. The word hated, the way that it's used, means that this is something that is always true. So it's always true that there's never anyone who hates his own flesh. He's really emphasizing that uh, because he, he wants to eliminate any idea that would justify or allow an individual to stop loving their wife. He, he wants us to understand that there's an impossibility there, that if you do that, you are clearly and outrightly rebelling against God himself, if you do that. Again, when he says that there was no one who ever hated his own flesh, the word flesh is a word that's used in a lot of different ways in the New Testament. Um, the context pretty much helps us to understand what it's speaking about. And here again, he's talking about the physical body, your actual physical body. So then when, he, when you go into the word nourishes and cherishes it, that's how he treats it. The word nourish means to nourish up to maturity. Uh, it's a word that's used to, to help raise someone up from childhood to maturity by not only supplying for their physical needs, but also supplying for their emotional needs and the needs of their soul. The uh, word cherish, uh, the Greek word is thalpo, which, which originally meant to warm or to brood. The idea is that you are warming someone up with body heat. The idea is, is the, an emphasis on tender care and, and tender love. So if we take those two words, the word nourish and the word cherish, if we take those words, just spend a moment on them for just a moment. The word nourish, again, is a word that speaks of, of tenderness when it comes to caring for another one. And again, it's, it's often used for nourishing children to maturity. Now, that doesn't mean that you treat your wife like a child or that your wife is a child. That's not what he's emphasizing. What he's emphasizing here is the tenderness part. Uh, it's kind of like this. If it, you, you probably can see this anywhere because it's kind of a natural thing. When, when a man comes in contact with a little child... He normally changes when he's speaking to the child. He doesn't talk like I'm talking now. Right? That would blow the child away. They would freak out, especially if you don't know them. If you, if it's, you know, let's say that you're meeting someone's child for the first time. Usually what we do is there's all kinds of body language involved in this. You bring your shoulders together. Like somehow you can get smaller. All right? But you bring your shoulders together. Your hands move much more carefully and slowly. You're much more gentle. Your voice, you, you purposely ratchet it back big time. You're no longer bellowing. Uh, you know, you, you, you talk maybe even in a, almost a whisper. Um, you're very careful in the way that you word things. You are intent on looking at them to make sure that there's nothing that you're doing that will freak them out. Uh, if they begin to look like they're afraid, you might even back up a little bit. But there's a tenderness uh, that automatically begins to come through in the way that a man is dealing with a child. And he's doing that because he's being tender. So no matter how big the guy is, no matter how strong the guy is, when he, when he meets a kid, 
unless something's happened in his life, they become immediately very, very tender. And so the way that you treat that child, that, that effort that you put into treating that child in that way, the, the idea where you change everything consciously, that's what he's talking about when it comes to how a man is to treat his wife. It's with tenderness. Not, he's not to be rough uh, with them. Even if he's trying to teach a child how to do something, Again, what he does is he's very tender, very gracious. Uh, he will explain things. If the child does something wrong, again, he doesn't bellow at them. You know, it's no, 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 it's not like that. It's like this. And then you, very, you may gently take their hands and help them to do whatever. It's just a great thing to be able to watch whenever you see, you know, whenever you watch a dad with his kids, that's what you're seeing. Especially when they're young, you see that, that tenderness. And that's what he's emphasizing here. That's the word picture that uh, he wants us to have in our mind. So we have this tenderness, we have this care, there's this extra effort, there's this extra time to make sure that you're covering all the bases, and the idea is that we as men then need to make sure that this is our approach to our wives. The idea then would be this, is that if you start satisfying your wife with that kind of time and that kind of direction, that kind of care, uh, then it's going to... uh, you know, you're, you're, you end up treating them the way you want to be treated, and so that really helps the relationship. Now, what's important about this, because this is what can happen, is sometimes what the wife will say is she will then begin to talk rough to her husband until he gets this. You heard what he said. Now, you start treating me right. And if you don't treat me right, I'm going to... Okay, that's not the right approach, just so you know. <laughs> All right, men, sometimes we get things slowly. It takes a while. Uh, we'll make mistakes along the way. Uh, but the idea is that we're both being patient with each other. And, of course, it's a lifelong commitment. So that means we're going to be patient for the rest of our lives. We're going to mess up more than once. We're going to, you know, men are not going to treat their wife with tenderness. That's going to happen more than once in their lifetime. Uh, it should be that they're more tender now in year 10 than they were in year 1 and so on and so forth. But the idea is, is that this is what is being emphasized. And again, remember, uh, once again, the cultural context of this. Because the cultural context of this is throughout all of the land, throughout most of the world, wives were not treated with kindness or tenderness. There was no nourishing going on. This was, a, it was almost like it was a legal transaction that took place. She was there for legal purposes, to bear your legal heirs, and that was it. When it came to companionship, the man went somewhere else. That was what the culture taught. That's what the culture accepted. So this idea that uh, a man gets his companionship and everything else from his wife, that's new information for these individuals. They've never heard that before. Now, those who are Jewish are kind of accustomed to that, But in the surrounding areas, the city they live in, the country they live in, the world they live in, that's not the norm. So the idea then is is that Paul is stressing this so these individuals really grasp what it is he's talking about. The word cherish, again, is a word which simply means to make warm. So it's kind of like this. When a child is distraught, maybe distraught over several things, we we oftentimes see how a mother does this. What does the mother do? She usually takes the child puts the child on her lap and hugs him or hugs her. There's that that very sweet, tender moment. You just hold him. And the warmth of that embrace 
is really a very secure feeling for that kid. It's a, and it's a very, we now know through psychological studies and all the rest, that things happen in the brain chemistry and the wiring of the brain for the child. And so that, that those moments are really very important for both mom and dad to do with the child. But the idea is that embrace, you know, where you, you bring someone close and that body warmth and all that, that brings about a great sense of security. You're not solving their problem. No circumstances have changed. But it is a, a reassuring sense of certainty that is given to them. And again, he is using that word to convey to husbands how they are to treat their wife and how they are to be towards them. We never want to underestimate this, uh, the effect of this. Now, we're, we're all different emotionally. And so some of us do this naturally, where we just kind of reach out and hug and we understand it's important to hold individuals. Others of us, it's a thing you have to learn. Um, because whether we weren't raised that way, thank goodness all of us can change. So this isn't about how often you hug your wife. Uh, it's obviously important to do that. But we want to make sure that we're conveying these emotions, these feelings, to give her that sense that she's important, that you care about her, and it brings about a sense of security uh, with the individual. We'll get into more of that later tonight if I have time. If not, we'll have to do it next week because it really is amazing how God has created us and how all this works together. But let me give you uh, an example of that because we have these moments in our lives as families that are really very, very important. Um, on, uh, I think this was, oh, I'm trying to remember how long ago this was. He's 30, so I guess this was 12 years ago. Good night. Um, sorry, I'm just trying to remember. This is, it has to be my youngest son, uh, Jim Michael. When he was a senior in high school, uh, I, you know, I coached football, and we were playing. It was an away game, and we're getting ready for the game. And about five minutes before the game, uh, the head coach was informed that their teammate from last year, a kid who graduated the year before, we had been killed on 995 in a wreck. And so we talked about it, so we were going to tell the kids. We decided not to let the kids go home after the game, that we would tell them before, before that. So, we would, so the, the, the idea was to play the game and then tell the kids. So we knew it was going to be a rather emotional thing because, I mean, they, they, most of them had seen him earlier that day because uh, he came by to say hi to a bunch of his buddies because he wasn't going to be able to come to the game. He was driving wherever it was he was driving, and that was when he got hit and uh, basically it broke his neck. So when the game was over, you know, that we're, we won and we're celebrating and bringing all the kids over. Now we've got to tell them, oh, by the way, your friend is dead. And so we, we tell the kids uh, that their friend had died in a wreck and, and explain how it happened. And so uh, my, my son is there. There's nothing to say. I'm glad that I was there. And so we embraced, and I held him, and he cried. I cried because he was crying because I didn't know the kid that well, even though I was coaching football. He would always work with a group of kids I don't work with. I always work with linemen and stuff like that, and he was a receiver. So I didn't know him that well. Uh, but my son had gone to school with him for six, seven, eight years. And so... Um, we held each other, and, and I don't know how long we were there. Uh, many of the parents that were there were holding their kids. Uh, it was just a, uh, an important and a great moment that, as human beings, how we connect to each other, and something that's important uh, for us to do because it, it communicates a great deal. So there is, again, this sense of security, um, uh, 
and that we do that with those that we cherish. It's again, in those moments, there is something about the warmth and the security and the oneness that is cherishing. And again, that's the word that Paul uses. So again, what Paul is trying to emphasize and what he's trying to get across is that when we treat our wives that way, where we're nourishing and cherishing them, and they feel the warmth of our love, and they feel the security that you're not going to run out on them, they begin to feel the fact that you really do care. So there's lots of ways that we communicate to each other uh, in a marriage. We do it verbally, there's nonverbal cues, there's all different kinds of things that we do. And it's important that we avail ourselves of those things. And it's not that we have a list of things and you just like, you know, okay, today at 4.05, I need to make sure that I hug my wife. Um, it's, it's not like that, even though I've actually known guys who've had to write themselves notes to do that um, until it becomes kind of a habit. But these things are important because God wants us to communicate uh, this to our wives. We've heard the joke. There's lots of jokes like this, but, you know, there's this joke where there's... Um, uh, this wife is complaining to her husband, and she says, um, I just don't understand it. You have never, uh, in our marriage, you've, you don't tell me that you love me. And he said, whoa, hold on there, lady. He said, I told you when I married you, I loved you, and ain't nothing changed. I'll let you know when it has. All right? <laughs> so and you all kind of laugh, but sometimes we laugh because we know people like that. Sometimes we laugh because we're that way. But the idea is, is that, that even though that's kind of funny, it's not to be that way. Now, again, this is not, uh, the, the idea here is not to make us all the same kind of individual. We're not trying to change personalities. We're not trying to make all of us the kind of individuals who are kind of weepy and huggy all the time. You're still going to be who you are as an individual. We do want to make sure that we're communicating these things because that would be in obedience to what God has said. He's commanding us to do this. So this isn't an option here, saying, well, that's not just the way I am, or that's not just the way that I was raised. That, that doesn't matter. We need to become a little different if we're not that way and begin to exercise uh, these things that Paul is talking about. Again, he explains to us the why here. Verse 29 again, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. And then he says, just as the Lord does the church. So once again, that's the standard that he's using. So he's not, he's not using someone who is uh, necessarily soft emotionally as the example of saying, okay, guys, here's this man over here, um, and I know you seem as being very soft, but that's who you should be like. That's not what he's saying. The example he's using is the way that Jesus Christ cares for the church, the way he nourishes the church, and the way that he cherishes the church. We know the Lord clearly supplies every need of the body uh, of the church, and husbands, we are to do the same for our wives. We are not just to provide for most of her needs or just provide when she is not too picky or too demanding. We are to provide for her. What the church needs, Christ supplies, and husbands are to supply what their wives need without caveats or qualifiers. Except there might be one caveat, and that's that we are to supply those things that she needs, not her every want. But when it comes to that, even in those situations... The role of the husband is to help his wife discern, if she needs that, the difference between wants and needs. And again, it's to be done with gentleness and kindness. So there's to be this working together. Uh, and there are certain areas where men are weak or maybe 
uh, because of our society, has been downplayed. And so what Paul does is he moves to those areas to say, men, this is how you need to be with your wife. This is what you need to do. This is what Christ has done for the church. So you need to remember that this is what you need to do for your wife. The men in those days never thought of ever supplying for their wives emotional needs. They never thought of that. Because that in the culture, you didn't do that. All you cared about was your needs. And the man viewed a woman as being someone who was given to men to meet their needs, period. And so that's why he had his wife for his legal things, and he had his mistresses for this over here, and he had this cook over here, and it was all kinds of stuff. If they had the money that he had going on, and he felt that's how life was to be lived. And here's Paul coming along saying, yeah, that's not how it is. This is the way it's supposed to be. You're actually supposed to have a a relationship with only one woman. A relationship. And these guys are like, a what? And you're supposed to care for her. You're supposed to to be tender towards her and seek to help her to mature and grow as, as a person, to grow as a Christian. You're to be loyal and faithful. You are to uh, cherish her. And the idea is, again, to warm her with your body so that she knows that you care for her and that you love her. And remember, these guys, this, you know, they're just blowing all kinds of circuits here uh, when they're hearing all these things. So again, uh, uh, Even in this situation, as I said, the husband is to help her to discern the difference between wants and needs, but to do so with kindness and gentleness. The husband is the provider, the protector, and the preserver. Husbands are missing the mark when they view their husbands as, when they view their wives as objects. And again, you know, they view their wives as being the cook or the babysitter, the house cleaner, the sex partner, whatever it happens to be. And so what they needed to view her as being God's gift and is to be one who's continually cherished and nourished. So verse 30, he goes on and talking about that the Lord provides for the church. And he says in verse 30, for we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. So all he's emphasizing here in this passage is that we are not something apart from Christ. Okay, when it comes to the church, when it comes to believers, we are not something apart from Christ. We don't occupy an incidental relationship uh, or relation to the Lord. We are literally veritable parts of the body of which he is the head. And so because we're part of his body, that is why he nourishes and cherishes the church because of that direct connection. So what he's uh, kind of drawing out from that is what he's already mentioned before, that we are one flesh. We are one entity. So in a sense, what he's saying is because she is a part of you, because you are one new entity, you are to do this. No one ever hated his own flesh. And you are to do this. You are to be this way. And that is the idea that he's talking about here. So again, verse 31, he wants to continue with that idea because, again, it's, it's something that's not new. You know, for, the, for those who are Jewish, remember, this goes all the way back to the Old Testament. And so he quotes from the Old Testament. Verse 31, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So by going back and quoting from the book of Genesis, he's helping these individuals to understand that perhaps they've been They've been too greatly influenced by, by society. And they need to get back to what the scripture says. They need to go back to this, to this old truth that's always been around. And get back to the basics of what the Bible says. The word leave here, it says that a man shall leave his, uh, his father and mother. It is a word which means to leave behind and there is an intensified meaning there. And it doesn't mean that you have to physically move away to another state. But the idea is, is that the emotional uh, 
dependence that you have on your parents now shifts. The commitment and the loyalty that you have towards your parents now shifts to this woman who's your wife. It doesn't mean you, you no longer honor your parents because the Bible tells us what? You honor them for the rest of your life. But this relationship that you have with them is now very different because you're no longer a child. You now have somebody under your care. So you are to leave that behind and you are then to put your focus and your attention upon your wife. So again, to leave means to leave behind and your loyalty and your devotion from your parents is now shifted to your spouse. The Expositor's Bible Dictionary says this, The marriage tie takes precedence over every other human relationship. And for this reason is to be regarded as one that can never be violated or dissolved. Nevertheless, what is basically a divine ordinance is graciously designed for mutual satisfaction and delight. So the word joined here, it says, and be joined to his wife. The word joined that is used in the Greek language means to glue one thing to another so that it cleaves or so that it adheres. Uh, obviously, it carries the idea to be united with, to join oneself closely to, or to stick to, or to be faithfully devoted to. The Greek word is proskalao. Uh, it's a medical term that was used to describe the uh, uniting of wounds. Uh, and it was a verb which emphasized not only permanence, but also the unity of two who have been, who've been glued together. So I think it was Warren Wiersbe who said this once. He was kind of illustrating this to his church. And he said, so you take a picture of a husband, you take another picture of his wife, and you glue them together. You allow time for the glue to set. He says, what happens, when you, what happens then when you try to take the two individual pictures apart? Where there's a shredding of, you, you, you can't. It's gonna be, you're going to have a tearing of, of the photograph of either one of them. And, so the, and that's the idea of a marriage. It is a, it is a relationship that takes precedence. Now, again, remember that when it comes to this relationship, it, it's, sometimes people can get the wrong idea. That somehow that it's a relationship that you have that then you have no other relationships. That, that's, it's, it's not an isolationist kind of a, a idea. Because the goal of not only that they are to help each other grow as Christians, but the goal is for them to share their life with other people. There's never this pulling away from other individuals. There's going to be an involvement in the lives of other individuals. But this devotion and commitment is to each other is to be the priority in their lives. And then they, they orchestrate and they organize their life. Uh, and the assumption would be here that they, these are believers. So you're going to organize and orchestrate life according to what the Word of God has to say. That's, that's how it's, it's going to be. Uh, but again, it's clear as to who is number one uh, on there. And so if there's that type of, of, of growing and nurturing taking place, then the couple's going to be very, very effective in being able to reach out to others. Right? We, we need to re remember the importance of that because we come in contact with people in the world who don't have that. For some of them, the only time they're going to see a man and woman love each other like that is going to be in the context of the church and the context of friendships they have in the church. The only way they're going to learn about that, because they've never experienced it at home, is what they see here. And then the friendships they develop here. And that's another reason why it's important for us to open up our, our homes and open up our lives to other people. And we do that in different ways. Some people may have the personality where you can have people in and out of your house all the time. Others, it may just be sporadically, depending on what the idea, but what the idea is, is what they, what they both can do well. But it's never the idea that we isolate ourselves and close ourselves off from other people. 
There is to be a sharing of our life where others, in a sense, even can see our own inconsistencies. Because we are growing together as Christians. And that's how we want to let people into our lives. And we want to make sure that we don't allow ourselves to uh, use that, that kind of false humility. Uh, where we say, well, you know, we're not quite ready for that yet. We've got so many things we've got to work through. Well, you might. But if you're going to wait till you get things worked through, then you're never going to have any kind of hospitality. You're never going to show it. Because you're never going to be, arrive at the point you think that you need to be. And so we need to live in obedience to what the Word of God says. It's kind of this mishmash, and we're all just kind of growing together. Um, it's kind of like when it comes to having kids. You know, in one sense, if you think about it, you will never be ready to have children. You will never quite be mature enough. You'll never quite have enough money. And by the time you have enough money, have enough maturity, you're too old. So this is all kind of written to God's plan. And so we just kind of like, well... We want to have, you know, young people, they, they've been married for five minutes sometimes. Oh, we, we want to have kids, which I think is fabulous. All right, and we're thinking, oh, my word, these people are just so immature. I can't believe they want to be parents. Uh, well, it's going to help them grow up. The Lord will use that in their life. But that's why the church is so important, because we help each other to mature. We, we um, uh, live out and we are examples of discipline, consistency, and, and we, are the, we should be the resource for them to help them to learn these things rapidly and quickly as, as they have children begin to raise them. We're the ones that should be looking out for them. And, and if you see them doing something wrong or you, you, know, you see neglect, whatever it happens to be, we need to be the ones in this loving environment that can step forward and we can help them with that and help them with these things that might be kind of awkward or uncomfortable because of the relationship that we have with each other. So again, the church has always been um, a very vital part of God's plan. It was very countercultural back then when all this was written, and it remains the same today. For for many, many decades in our country, the norm, even among those who were secular, those who were unbelievers, the norm was still they tended to emulate Christian values. There is still this belief that husband and wife should be faithful to each other no matter what. There was still the belief that divorce should be very rare. There was still this belief that mom and dad should raise their kids. There was still this belief that mom and dad, you know, they, they shared everything and they shared a life together. And that we should treat each other with respect. All those things uh, were kind of in place. But our society is no longer there. We have moved far away from that. We're involved in all kinds of things, and, and there's a great massive amounts of, of confusion uh, in our society. And so once again, the church should stand out uh, uh, in, in, in contrast to everything that's going on. And, so, and believe it or not, husbands and wives loving each other as they're supposed to, men taking on the responsibility that they're supposed to in the home, that's very countercultural. That doesn't happen. You have, there, it's kind of popular now for men to, uh, you know, do more things at home, you know, carry the baby and wash the dishes, and that's great. But there's so much more than just that. And, you don't, and even though you may have commercials where, you know, because a lot of times you can, you can read where a culture is by looking at the commercials, so you, or where, the, where people are trying to direct our culture by commercials, is that we have these commercials where you have more and more men doing all these kinds of things. You, what, there's certain commercials you don't see because they don't make them. They don't make daddy taking kids to church. They don't make commercials where daddies reading the Bible to their kids. 
They don't make commercials where daddy's praying with his children. That's not in there. And so, once again, we're counterculture uh, when it comes to those types of things. So, because of this idea of a husband and wife being glued together in this way, that helps us to understand, helps us to imagine what God is saying about the dissolution of the marriage covenant between a husband and wife, and that it has major repercussions uh, on the lives of individuals. It tears things apart. In fact, I think uh, um, I may have mentioned this to you before, but there's been two major studies done on the effects of divorce on children. And the question, uh, with one of them, the main question they were trying to answer was this. At what age can the parents divorce where it will have a minimal impact on the kids? Because you've heard people say, well, you know, my wife and I have decided we're going to split up, but right now we're going to stay together for the kids. And then when they graduate high school... You know, then we're gonna, they'll be old enough, we'll let them know, know what the deal is, we're going to go our separate ways. And so these uh, psychiatrists wanted to find out, so at what age then is the impact lessened to the degree that it's not a major impact on their life? How old do the kids need, need to be? And the overwhelming answer after studying, I think the study involved 1,500 kids, was age 32. It's not 18 it's not 16, it's not 21, it's age 32. That if parents get divorced before their kids... Now, it doesn't mean that, that the divorce doesn't affect the kids uh, if they're older than 32, but as far as having a major impact on their life, all up until age 32. And they said there is an absolute direct correlation between the number of individuals who come from a divorced home who they themselves have difficulties and you just make the list, whether it's alcohol... Prescription drug use, illegal drug use, uh, their own uh, relationship issues, uh, anger issues, depression, anxiety. The list goes on, and it's a very high percentage, a much higher percentage, for those who come from homes where there's been a divorce as opposed to those where there's not been a divorce. And it's just, it's overwhelming. Uh, And it was so overwhelming, they really, it's almost as if they were ashamed to bring out uh, the results of their study because... It goes against everything that people, things that people were saying. And they even, they even uh, did another study where they asked this question. Well, because we know that sometimes divorces can be very uh, nasty. People just, they talk bad about the spouse and they fight over the kids and there's all these bad things that happen. So they, they did another study and they asked themselves, so what if the parents then do everything in their power to make the divorce as friendly as possible, where they would never speak bad Never have a bad attitude or show any emotion that was negative toward the other person in this divorce. How does that, you know, how does that impact the kids? Because so many people will emphasize that. Yeah, we divorce, but, you know, we love our kids. And so we've worked it out. We're still really good friends, you know, so that it doesn't have any negative impact on the kid. And so, again, the question is, so if that's the kind of divorce that, that takes place, what is the difference in the impact on the kids from those kinds of divorces? And the answer is none. None. It's unbelievable. And so that, that's the way that God has designed it. And again, as I said, we'll have to do it next week because it gets into creation a little bit uh, to help you understand this bond that we have in the family, which is, I think is just mind-blowing uh, and one that uh, biology uh, goes a long way in helping us to understand some of these things. So we have to ask ourselves a question, which is this. So why 
Why so many problems? Why does it seem that there is so much against the husband and wife relationship? And our culture, that we've been moving away from marriage for a long time. There seems to be continual attacks on marriages. There's, there's, there seems to be movement, so to speak, in culture where it's almost as if the goal is to tear apart a marriage. Where we've done everything we can to make divorce as easy as possible. I'm not sure what the philosophy is behind that. Uh, but there's been this movement that goes all the way back to the 70s when they began to try to formulate ways to do what they call no-fault divorce and those types of things to uh, kind of create less friction and less problems. And none of those things have worked. None of those things have worked. There are individuals now where um, uh, in our society when it comes to um, uh, individuals who have affairs that, that now there's these which uh, I know you know about. There's these websites and all these things people can get, can get onto. And there's individuals who advertise that they want to have an affair with someone who's married. And the reason why they want to have an affair with someone who's married is because they don't want to get into a long-term relationship with a person. And if they're already married to someone else, they don't have to worry about that. And so they're, they're out there advertising, trying to get dates and looking for individuals. For, and so this kind of thing goes on like all the time. You may not be aware of it, and you're not really missing out on much, uh, but it's a very uh, strongly promoted thing here and in Europe and in other places. And it really is incredible. So there's a lot in our society that is against this. Um, and uh, so we need to be aware of it. So I'm going to give you just a brief, a brief introduction to some of these things. And then we'll, we'll get into it in a little bit of detail next week and finish this up. So I want to tell you about two different kinds of uh, hormones or, yeah, hormones that we have uh, inside of us. The first one is called oxytocin. So this isn't oxycotton. We're not talking about pain reliever. This is oxytocin. And they first discovered this because of its role in childbirth and breastfeeding. That it's a chemical that's released. That when a mother nurses her baby, it, it stimulates a, 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 an emotional movement in her, in her life to really care and bond with her child. So in other words, when she's nursing a child, there's a literal chemical reaction in her body that actually motivates her and moves her to have loving, caring feelings for her child and and to want to continue to take care of her child. It's a biological reaction. So it's it's a very emotional thing. It doesn't mean she's weeping, uh, but the idea is that when she does this, it reinforces uh, her desire to care for her child. It is... uh, some have said it's you know, what they used to call an instinct. Well, it's an instinct, but there's this biological aspect to it. Uh, some have even called it the attachment hormone. So they have discovered that this oxytocin is released when, uh, when men and women get together and they're physical. It's released then as well and causes her then to have this care and concern for her partner or for her husband. In the Christian context, it would be her husband. And so once again, there's this biological uh, element that's involved here that this chemical is released that attaches us to that individual. And it's especially strong in women. So consequently, the desire to attach to the other person when you sleep with them is not only emotional, it's part of our chemistry. And this, this chemical, oxytocin, has also been shown to create a sense of trust. So there's not only this attachment, there's not only this bonding, there's a sense of trust that's developed because of this hormone being released when they sleep together. So 1 Corinthians 6.18 reads this way, Flee sexual immorality. Every sin 
that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. There's a lot of things written as to what does that mean. What does it mean when he says that he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body? Well, I think in part, I don't think it's too far-fetched to say, that when it comes to sexual involvement, um, it, the, uh, the act of sex involves our bodies down to the level of our biochemistry. And, by the way, the same thing happens in men. The very same thing. It's a different chemical. It's a neurochemical that uh, is released when a man sleeps with a woman, and it's vasopressin. It stimulates a bonding with a woman and with his offspring. So people talk about, you know, when a man holds a newborn, his newborn child, and they talk about that bonding. Yeah, well, that chemical is being released. Now, that's not the sole cause of it. There's a lot of things that are involved. But the point is, is that God has designed our bodies in such a way that when we respond, when a man responds to, to holding his child, it involves the whole person. He's not sitting there, he's not holding the child saying, well, I really don't feel anything, but I guess it's mine, so I need to be committed. That's not what's happening. Now, he might be saying that, but he's also feeling a very strong attachment to his child. And that's the way they're supposed to be. That's the way that God has designed us to be. One expert has said that when you sleep with someone, you should know that your body makes a promise, whether you do or not. However, as a result of multiple partners in, in life, deep attachment each time becomes more and more difficult. And that's one of the reasons why making marriages last becomes ever more difficult as well. It's kind of like this. You take a strip of scotch tape, you put it on the wall to hold up a poster. Take the scotch tape off, take it off the poster, put it on another poster, stick it on the wall to hold. After a while, you can use it only so many times. And it'll work. It doesn't last. And so when people have several partners... It causes all kinds of problems, all kinds of emotional problems in the beginning because it involves the whole body and the emotion of the individual, but it also causes problems further down the road. In other words, the things that you do as a teenager, even if you, even if you were messing up for only a couple of years and then you were celibate for 10 years and then you got married, it can still cause some difficulty. Not things that cannot be overcome through Christ. They definitely can Absolutely. And we'll talk a little bit about that next time. But we need to understand that what we see happening in our society does not happen by accident. When we violate God's design, God's design for the universe is unbelievably and highly complex. And it is fascinating. Just as it's fascinating that if you cut your finger and if you were to take a videotape and just film your finger... You might not want to hold it there that long. But if you were to hold your finger there for days and then take the videotape and watch it fast forward, what you would see is the body healing itself. God, is, God has made the body to do that. Well, that's not the only thing he's made the body to do. And it's incredible how he's done all these things for us to make our life so much more satisfying and fulfilling in every way. That's why then we have such a strong, great sense of pleasure or pride when our children achieve things, whether it's their first steps or when they graduate from college. It's because of that attachment that's there and the way that God has created us. And that is some of the things that people are destroying in their sinful lifestyles. They have no idea 
what they are destroying. They have no idea what they're doing to their own future because no one is telling them. No one is communicating it. And the world certainly isn't going to tell them. And here we come back then to what Paul is saying. And it just continues to make more and more sense. The more that you learn and the more that you read, it just all fits together perfectly. And all we can say is, man, this is amazing. God did all of this for us because so that our families, our marriages can be the best things we have. The best things that we have in this life is our families. With all of its trouble and difficulty, it's worth it because of all the things that God gives to us. And it's truly amazing. And so let me just end with this. As I said, we'll cover a little more of the details next week. But let me just remind you what Paul ends with in verse 33. So nevertheless, in spite of all this information, let me just end with this. Let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray. Father, heaven again, we are grateful for your incredible love for us and for your really unbelievable design of the human body. And Lord, we are amazed as we continue to learn more about the body and the way that it works and the way relationships work as we look at the um, commands that you give to us in the relationship between the husband and wife and vice versa. As we begin to understand, Father, more and more of how you care for the church and how we are to care for each other and everything that you've provided for us, Father, to make our lives full and satisfying and pleasurable in so many ways. It's absolutely astonishing, and we thank you, Father, for that. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to embrace what life has given us, what you have given us in life, and to realize, Lord, that you have saved us from the destruction and the curse of sin. You have repaired those things that perhaps we ourselves have broken. And you've given to us, Father, a great sense of fullness that comes because of Christ. And Father, we ask, Lord, that not only would we enjoy that and just be in awe of who you are because of what you give us, but Lord, to, to wrap all that together and may it motivate us, Father, to be able to really reach out to others and to help them in their misery and help us to understand how truly broad and far-reaching the gospel is when it comes to healing the individual and every aspect of the life that sin has touched. Truly, Father, the cross of Christ is a marvelous thing. So we thank you, and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.